My name is Ed Crane. I'm president of the Cato Institute, and thank you all for coming to this conference. I want to congratulate uh, Jim Dorn on putting together another outstanding monetary conference. These events have earned uh, an international uh, reputation for excellence, and today's uh, conference will only uh, enhance that reputation. We're delighted to have as our closing speaker uh, today a good friend of the Cato Institute and one of the most respected businessmen in the nation, John Allison. John served as uh, chairman and CEO of BB&T Corporation from uh, 1989 through uh, 2009, 20 years during which BB&T grew from a small uh, regional bank to one of the 10 largest and most successful banks in the United States. John uh, dealt with the financial crisis of the past several years, I believe, as well as anyone in the industry, and has provided some of the most forceful and insightful analysis of what went wrong and how to fix it. So he's the perfect uh, person to conclude this conference. Uh, John Allison is currently a distinguished professor of practice on the faculty of the uh, Wake Forest University Schools of Business. He serves on many boards, including the Fuqua Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics at uh, Duke University, the Fuqua Coach K Center. So even, even at Duke, they don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, he is uh, a past member of the Board of Directors of the Financial Services Roundtable and the Clearinghouse. Uh, John Allison was recognized by the Harvard Business Review as one of the world's uh, top 100 CEOs over the last 10 years. And he was presented uh, the uh, American Banker Lifetime Achievement Award, among many, many other honors. Finally, I'd be uh, remiss in not mentioning his active involvement with the Ayn Rand Institute and their efforts to promote the philosophy of objectivism. John has been remarkably successful in setting up chairs in business schools at major universities that will teach business ethics from an objectivist uh, perspective. Ultimately, uh, a free and prosperous society depends on honest money and high levels of business ethics. Uh, few people are more well-versed in those issues than our final speaker today. Please welcome John Allison. Thanks, Ed. Very nice. Thanks, Ed. It's uh, really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for staying. I know it's, uh, it's kind of late. I think I will try to bring to you a little different perspective uh, in that I'm uh, a real-world business person who was CEO of a large financial institution for 20 years and worked in the banking business for 40 years. And in that context, I view myself, and in some ways, unfortunately, as having worked under the Federal Reserve. You know, in theory, CEOs report to boards that report to shareholders. While that's true in many businesses in the financial services industry, we quasi-report to boards, we quasi-report to shareholders, and we definitely report to regulators. Um, interesting, uh, uh, the, the analysis that I'm going to give you is based on what I call human action. There's a lot of mathematics that I see this a lot in, in, in academia, and it certainly has some meaning. But the real issue is what does government policy incent real-world human beings to do? And I'm going to share with you my own experiences in that regard and also the, my insight into the actions of other uh, CEOs. Um, simple observation about the Federal Reserve. 
Uh, I've known many people in the Federal Reserve in monetary policy uh, in particular. They are very smart people. They're highly committed people. Uh, they're highly intelligent in, in many senses of the word. However, in my experience, they're guilty of what uh, the great free market uh, economist uh, Frederick Hayek called fatal conceit. And that's the belief of smart people, they can do the impossible. I don't care how smart you are, how great of mathematical models you, ha you have, you cannot integrate the economic activity of 7 billion people on this planet. Unfortunately, uh, on the regulatory side of, of not just the Federal Reserve, but I mean all the regulatory agencies, the people aren't as smart. Uh, they tend to be very tunnel visioned and sometimes drop the context. And some therefore, or sometimes regulatory policy and monetary policies actually move in conflicting uh, directions. One context for the comments I'm going to uh, make, uh, I strongly believe the recent financial crisis, the ensuing recession and the very slow recovery is primarily caused by government policy. And, and I think the government policy that caused it is primarily two components. First, the Federal Reserve made some very bad monetary decisions that created a bubble, a massive misinvestment in our economy. The bubble ended up being focused in the residential real estate market, the housing market, primarily because of affordable housing policies and specifically the actions of uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the giant government-sponsored enterprises that when they failed owed five and a half trillion dollars and had two and a half trillion dollars of subprime mortgages. Yes, a number of banks made bad mistakes. I'd have let them fail, but they were very secondary and in the context of government policy. Let me share with you a little different view of the, the Fed that's been expressed today by people kind of looking from the outside. As a banker, you see the Fed as having three primary roles. They control the payment system. They're the number one regulator, although you can throw the FDIC and uh, et cetera in there, but they're all really together. And then, of course, monetary policy. A couple quick comments on the payment system. The Fed owns the payment system. There is no private payment system in the United States. Having troubles in the monetary economy, by definition, they're caused by the Federal Reserve, right? If interstate highway bridges were falling down, everybody said, well, the Fed owns the interstate highways, the bridges are falling down. I mean, the government owns the interstate highways, it's the government's fault. The payment system is controlled by the Fed, and ultimately, the shadow banking system has to get back to the payment system. Operational side of the payment system, that just is an interesting analogy. And this is the clearinghouse, as, as Ed mentioned. I was on the clearinghouse board for a number of years. And, and it's interesting how this works. The Fed controls the clearing mechanism largely for, for the banks in the U.S. And the reason for the, that they do that is they've underpriced it. They're subsidizing the banking business. You can argue that's good public policy. But in particular, their subsidies go to small banks and non-banks who are inefficient providers. And what that has done in two ways, one, it slowed technological advances in the banking industry because the big banks have to wait for the little banks and the non-banks to be able to implement it. And second, it's created a lot of quality control problems because a lot of non-banks get in on free ride into the system and a lot of the privacy issues, et cetera, aren't created by banks. They're created by non-banks using the Fed window into the operating system. It's a perfect analogy with the post office. And you can compare the post office to FedEx and, and UPS. In fact, if you think the post office is a good thing, you ought to feel good about the Fed control and clearing mechanism. This is a very analogous system. Um, the good news is like the, the post office is going to go out of business, thank goodness, because of the email, and, and the Fed clearing system is going away largely because of, of electronic transactions. How about regulation? Now, that's a huge subject, but it is actually related to monetary policy, and sometimes people disconnect the two and, and forget about the impact of the regulatory role, and it's, it's a major uh, factor. First, the 
foundation for regulation of the banking industry is FDIC insurance. FDIC insurance is used as the excuse to justify a lot of regulations because the banks are being, quote, protected by the federal government. Uh, in my opinion, FDIC insurance is enough, the third contributor to the recent financial crisis. FDIC insurance destroys market discipline in the banking system. I'll give you an example. In, in the Atlanta market, BBT operates, lots of community banks fail. We took up a, one of those community banks as the typical example. There's 10 or 12 guys got together that were in the motel business, raised a little capital, started a bank, leveraged that capital out of the kazoo by buying certificate deposits at way above market rates, lent that to their cronies in the motel business. They went broke and the bank lost 50 cents on the dollar. Bigger examples, Golden West, Washington Mutual, IndyMac, uh, Countrywide, all large financial institutions that failed, all finance their high-risk lending business using FDIC-insured deposits. They absolutely could not have done it in a private marketplace. Uh, and it became a vicious cycle as Freddie and Fannie drove down the lending standards uh, in the subprime business. These other, pri quote, private competitors had to be more aggressive because they had to fund their, their high-risk loan portfolio to pay for the high-risk the high CDs. Uh, Bert Ely, that's here, uh, developed a model, a private insurance model that absolutely would have worked about 15 years ago. I believe if that model had been in place, the financial crisis would have been dramatically less than it was. The model never took place, not because of the FDIC, but because of banks. And the first bank we ran into an obstacle on was Citigroup. And if you ran the numbers that Bert was looking at, Citigroup needed to at least double and probably triple their capital or we weren't going to let them into the insurance pool. The FDIC, or not the Federal Reserve, was allowing them to run way too low a capital. Under our standards, Citigroup would not have failed. A private deposit insurance is a, is a, is a feasible solution. Um, a couple of thoughts about regulation and how regulations contributed to the bubble in the subprime market. And the first regulation to contribute was something called a fair, fair lending, which was supposed to eliminate racial discrimination in the, in the banking business. I joined BB&T in 1971. By that time, frankly, there was no racial discrimination because every bank was trying to make money and you wanted to make all the good loans you can make. Unfortunately, however, right before Bill Clinton got elected the first time, the, the Federal Reserve of Boston did a research study, and some Federal Reserve studies are good, some are not so good. This one was terrible. The research study concluded there was a lot of racial discrimination in the industry. Turns out the study has now been totally discredited. It was a, I called it a childish study. It only looked at debt to income ratios and it didn't consider the, uh, the reliability of the income. It didn't consider collateral. It didn't look at past payment history, character type issues. Nobody would have made a loan based on the standards that they used. And, and of course now the Fed itself has discredited the study. But when Clinton got elected, he was absolutely convinced there was racial discrimination. He had a huge political debt to the African-American community that had got him elected. And he was really energized about this, both over ethical and political reasons. So basically a dictate came out and the, it, the theory was the banking examiners had missed miss the racial discrimination, let's go find banks guilty. And they did that systematically. I talked to a lot of CEOs that got found guilty. No, they all said, no, we didn't do racial discrimination. However, it was easy just to pay this small fine and change these systems and then let them put out a press release that we were guilty of discrimination and that made, quote, everybody happy. Well, they came to BB&T and we didn't operate that way. They came to me and said we were guilty of racial discrimination. I said, well, if that's so, that's against our fundamental ethics. Give me the names of the people that are discriminated. I'm going to go fire them now. I'll do it personally. They said, oh, no, nobody discriminated. Okay. I said, how about a system? Do we have a system or process that causes discrimination? Oh, no. No, it just happened magically. 
So we said, okay, let's, go, let's get, get your evidence. We looked at the evidence, and basically they had these loans that we'd made, not made. And what we determined, and what the safety and soundness examiners, by the way, determined, is every loan we made, we should have made, and every loan we turned down, we should have turned down. There was no racial discrimination. Now, we were still advised to go ahead and admit it, because if we admitted it, we'd pay a fall fine and move on. We said no. They stopped our mergers and acquisitions for months. We had several in process that never materialized. We were ready to go to court. It may have been dumb, but we were ready to go to court. And then a very interesting thing happened, which will tell you a lot about the rule of law. Newt Gingrich and Republicans got elected two years into, into, into uh, Bill Clinton's term. Guess what the regulators did? The, the Republicans were elected on Tuesday. On Thursday, they all went home. We never heard from them again. True story. True story. Happened again recently, last year, Obama administration, more energy on, on fair, fair lending again. They accused us of discriminating on 13 loans. Now, BBT has millions of loans, 13 loans, where we were supposed to have charged higher interest rates on minority borrowers. We looked at the facts, and here's the interesting fact. Yes, the interest rate were, high, were higher, but the actual what's called the annual percentage rate was less. The government makes you compute. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars in the industry computing what's called APRs that are supposed to reflect the real cost of the industry. The, bar, the minorities were getting a better deal. They still said that was discrimination. They sent it to the Justice Department. Well, of course, what had happened is that our, our lenders were trying to help these low-income minority bars and help them refinance so they could cut their payments. But the bars didn't have the cash to pay the front-end fees. So they cut the fees and charged a little higher rate, and they helped the bars were a lot better off. That's, quote, discrimination. Went to the Justice Department, didn't hear anything for months. November 2010, the Republicans get elected again. Two weeks later, we get notification of the Justice Department they're not going to pursue it. Now, I don't know if it's connected or not, but it's just an interesting. Fair lendings was the beginning of the affordable housing uh, effort. Another big factor psychologically, not mathematically, was the Community Reinvestment Act. We we're supposed to eliminate redlining in the banking industry. Community Rest Investment Act, while the numbers weren't significant, the psych psychological effect was huge. What banks were forced to get into the low-income lending business, and banks are not designed to be low-income lenders. We're not consumer finance operations. Uh, and we were forced to do that on a fairly large scale. Interestingly enough, people wonder why Standard Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch made such bad ratings to subprime mortgages. What happened to them, and I don't justify what they did, they used the CRA loss ratios and assumed those were, were normal. Well, what was going on when the CRA was really kicking in housing prices were appreciating very rapidly. So we were having fairly high failure rates, but we weren't losing any money because the prices were going up, right? In addition, this is a mathematical thing, if your portfolio is growing very fast, it looks like your losses are a lot lower than they are. The losses catch up in the portfolio. So, so Standard Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch used these bank CRA ratios and, and made very bad loss assumptions in the subprime uh, uh, lending business. And finally, and this is non-trivial, CRA was a moral crusade. <laughs> banks, bankers were supposed to do low-income lending. And I know there's a lot of greed and crazy stuff on Wall Street, but when you combine this is the right thing to do and you make a bunch of money doing it, you create a huge incentive. A huge incentive. And, and CRA lending now is viewed bad, but it was viewed as a moral code to do. Um, another interesting thing, one of the myths out there is that the banking industry was deregulated during the Bush administration. Nothing can be further, further than truth. We were grossly misregulated. There were three major uh, regulatory uh, uh, programs during the Bush administration. First was the Privacy Act, where we send 
hundreds of millions of notices to our clients about privacy, and fortunately, nobody's dumb enough to read them. Complete waste of time. Uh, the second was Sarbanes-Oxley. Now, the bank, had, the bank industry had already had a Sarbanes-Oxley back in the 90s because of the failure of the thrift industry. This was a redundant system on a redundant system. Tremendous waste of time, energy, and focus, and very scary, by the way, very threatening. And then was the, then the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act is where we're supposed to catch terrorists. Uh, I, I've talked to a number of people in government, and they, they all do this dance act, but the truth is there's never been a single terrorist caught and convicted because of the Patriot Act. Not a single one. The industry spends $5 billion. And I would argue nobody's going to be caught, because if you're dumb enough to get caught on the Patriot Act, you're so dumb you're going to get caught anyway. Uh, <laughs> what's interesting about the Patriot the only significant convention on the Patriot Act is, is Elliot Spitzer, the governor of New York, was convicted of soliciting prostitutes. Now, in a way, that's just because Elliot Spitzer's a really bad guy. But in a way, those of you that are libertarians ought to be scared to death. What would be the basis of pursuing a governor of a state for prostitution of a law theoretically designed to eliminate terrorists? It's a really bad law. Let me tell you, the effect on this, and I'll tell you this personally, and this was the Federal Reserve on us, was it, the intense focus from the regulators on particularly on, the, on Sarbanes-Oxley and the Patriot Act, misdirected management focus dramatically in our organization. They were threatening to put, you know, do bad things to the board, fire management, maybe even put us in jail. It impacted our behavior radically and made us put a lot less focus on traditional risk management. And I guarantee that happened in the whole industry. The industry was not deregulated. It was massively misregulated. Um, one, la a couple, one summary thought about regulations and one other big aspect of regulation. Um, the cost of regulation is huge. Yeah, in fact, if you ask me, would I rather eliminate taxes for banks or eliminate regulations? This is no-brainer, regulations. BB&T alone has added 1,000 people on the regulatory stuff in the last year. And what, of course, what we've done is reduced production because <laughs> we, we couldn't afford to add 1,000 people. We shift people out from, from production into regulation. Uh, secondly, the mental price is, is high. You can only do so many things. And if you're trying to make some regulatory happy person happy, instead of being productive, creative, and innovative, you're, you, just, you become less of a creative, productive person. That's just, that's just a fact. Comment on safety and soundness regulation. First, in my career, I do not know of a single case where the regulators identified a significant financial institution problem in advance before the market knew it. Now, I know they've gotten involved a lot of times, and when they've gotten involved, my, my feeling from talking to the, to the management, most of the times they made the problem worse, not better. Uh, uh, and and so I don't view the regulators as actually stopping problems from happening. And why is that? Uh, and and this, you know, those of you that study public choice theory, this should not surprise you at all. In the good times, the regulators always under-regulate. Give you an example. Uh, BB&T took over a failed financial institution called Colonial. It was a big company, $25 billion company. And we only did it because we had FDIC insistence on the, on the credit risk. We had been following Colonial for 15 years. We've done a lot, BB&T did lots of mergers and acquisitions in my career, and Colonial fit in our acquisition bucket, so I'd been following the company for 15 years. We consciously chose not to, to buy the company uh, without the government assistance. Why was that? 
First, they were rolling up lots of crummy banks in Florida, and if you roll up a lot of crummy banks, you end up with a big crummy bank. Uh, secondly, they were making lots of big, high-risk real estate loans we saw in competition with them, and a lot of their revenues were coming in that. And thirdly, we met the CEO, and the CEO was a, uh, uh, a maniac in, in terms of his mental processes. He was very arrogant. Uh, he had an airplane that could probably hold 30 people, and he'd personally fly from, from Mobile to Birmingham in the airplane. That's, he couldn't have any middle management. He had good people in his branches. We looked at this company and we said, these guys are going broke someday. This is outside, no special, and we're not going to buy them. They're going broke. Examiners did not identify that problem. Why not? First, probably the examiners in there hadn't joined the agency until 1995. They've never seen bad times. The 2000 correction was a very minimalistic correction in the banking industry. So they'd never seen bad times. And even if they, so they couldn't even see that they had problems. They didn't understand the business. And if they had, what would they have done? Probably nothing. Why is that? This CEO had huge political clout. He was connected to the governor, the senators. If they had started problems, he'd have gone to the, to the politicians and they'd brought heat on the agency. And why do that? I'm going to rotate in five years. Why take that chance? Why take the chance? So under regulation in good times. Now, they can do, if, if, if Bush is energized about uh, the Patriot Act, they can do that because they've got political support for that. But the, under regulation of safety and sounds. How about in the bad times? And this has happened every time we've had a correction in my career. It happened in the early 80s, it happened in spades in the early 90s, and it's the worst this time. The regulators inevitably, irrationally tight lending standards, including financial institutions that have good credit histories. They did that at BB&T. They tightened our lender standards dramatically. Today, BB&T didn't make loans that we would have made if it were not for the regulatory process, and we put people out of business that we wouldn't have put out of business if it weren't for the regulatory process. So on one hand, the Federal Reserve's printing money like crazy trying to boost the economy. On the other hand, the banking regulators have tightened up like crazy on the industry. Why is that? If you're a local regulator, the only way you get in, I don't care what the people in D.C. say, the only way you get in trouble is your bank gets in trouble. It's a, it's a one-sided bet. It's classic public choice theory. This time was worse, and one reason our recession is deeper. And the reason it was worse and I don't, is the management, the leadership of the FDIC, was the worst this time. And the FDIC versus the Fed and, o and the OCC impacts more community banks. So the attack on community banking from the FDIC was worse this time around than it was in the early 80s and the early 90s. I do not think regulatory behavior will change. I do not. Um, let me talk a minute about monetary policy. And I know there are a lot more people that understand monetary policy deeper than me, but I think I do have some insights. First, over the years, I've, I've taken the opportunity to talk to a number of members of the Federal Reserve that are on the Open Market Committee. They're all smart, good human beings, well-intended, uh, very good people. I've talked to Alan Greenspan several times on this issue over the years, and I asked him a basic question, and I asked him, do they believe in price controls? Do they think the government, for example, could set the proper price for automobiles? To a person, and with a lot of energies, they said, absolutely not. Price controls never work, they're destructive. And then I've asked the follow-up question, well, when the Federal Reserve sets interest rates, isn't that price controls? And isn't that maybe the most important price in the economy? And not a one of them has given me an answer that anybody here would take was credible. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I call it, it's a form of evasion. It's a form of evasion. It's, it's just a very interesting phenomenon. Price controls don't work. <laughs> Federal Reserve control and the price of uh, money does not work. Well, let me tell you about what I, what I see, and this is human action. 
the incentives that the Fed created that led to the most recent financial crisis. I really think it started, well, it goes back a long time, but for, for this cycle, it starts with Alan Greenspan in the early 2000s. Greenspan was the maestro. He was the hero. He did not want to have bad times on the way out the door, right? So he created negative real interest rates. What that meant is you could borrow money at less than the inflation rate. That was a big deal in the residential real estate market because residential real estate prices were appreciating very rapidly. That was a huge incentive to expand residential construction development and, of course, home, home sales, uh, negative real interest. Near the end of his term, Greenspan says, maybe, I don't know what he said, but, but he, the way he acted, he, he must have realized maybe that wasn't so good, so he started finally raising interest rates, and then Bernanke followed. And in a two-year period, they raised Fed funds rate 425%. Now, they didn't raise it very high, but they raised it 425%. I use this with my Wake Forest students. What the annual tuition fees, et cetera, Wake Forest is about $50,000 a year. I say, okay, this year you have to pay $50,000. You're a sophomore. In your senior year, you're gonna, your annual tuition and fees is going to be $225,000. How do you feel about that? You think that might change your life? That's what happened to the cost of goods in the banking industry. And it was particularly destructive because Greenspan, remember back in the early 2000s, was telling the world the big problem was excessive savings. We're going to have deflation. We should never expect interest rates to go up. What did banks do? Extended their bond portfolios under Greenspan's advice. And they had whopping losses in their bond portfolios when that happened. And then in that process, Bernanke did something incredibly destructive. He inverted the yield curve. Banks make money by borrowing short and lending long. When the yield curve is inverted, short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. Banks' margins went negative. That meant we were buying watermelons for $10 and selling them for $8. Not a great time to be in the banking business when you'd already taken whopping losses in your bond portfolios. What did banks do? We're in a funny kind of business. You can make higher returns by taking more risk. Banks went out on the risk spectrum and most of the bad loans were made in this last part of the cycle under the inverted yield curve. By the way, this is one of the longest inversions in history. It was over a year. Markets, I've talked to this to finance people, wait, markets never invert yield curves. So this was a government policy inversion of yield curves. At the same time, Bernanke and the economists of the Federal Reserve were adamant we were not going to have a recession. They were adamant we weren't. said the whole problem's inflation, we're not going to have a recession. They didn't predict any kind of recession, much less the recession. Uh, we had, in fact, they didn't predict the recession until after it already happened. But anyway, they didn't predict the recession. And, and so banks, are, this is the psychological effect. Fortunately, I didn't believe them, so we didn't act on that. But I understand the human motivation. You got a negative spread, you got to do something. One thing that's interesting, academics talk about perfect information and, and, and acting in the long term. Well, in the real world, you don't have perfect information and you have to stay in business in the short term to get that long term. And so banks went out on the risk spectrum and made most of the bad loans. A couple of reflections on, on how this impacted the economy. I think I'll call this the green flan, uh, span in, in 2000 inflation. I think it was particularly destructive for something very subtle, and George Selzin's done some work on this, but I think this is really important. In human history, there are random periods where we suddenly have major advances in our ability to produce for a variety of reasons. I think this contributed significantly in contrast to some of the things that were said earlier to what happened in the Great Depression. In the 1920s, we were having a technological boom. Advances in automobiles, in, in, in uh, telephones, in radio, uh, in electricity. Whopping advances. And what should have been happening, what would have happened in a truly private banking system, prices would have been falling. 
because we were able to produce better goods at lower cost. Why? Prices should have been falling. The Federal Reserve held prices up. The market didn't realize, however, that what was really going on, that was massive inflation. It was a bad signal and people created the bubble in the stock market, which then burst. And then, of course, the Federal Reserve piled on. Even Bernanke will, uh, will admit this by uh, uh, creating huge liquidity problems. there, And they contributed dramatically to the, the Depression. But they set it up by holding prices up when they should have been falling. Same thing should have happened in the early 2000s. Different kind of advances. Not technology, but the entry of China and India on a serious basis into the global economy. For the first time in long, long time, Billions of people in China and India were more productive, more creative, more innovative, and our standard of living should have been going up, and, and it was benefiting from that. And prices should have been in a free fall. And what Greenspan was calling deflation was wrong. We should, prices should have been falling. If you can buy stuff cheaper and it's better, that's good, right? Prices should have been falling. Greenspan did not want prices to fall. That was a terrible message. First, people in the capital markets and in the investment business, we, we didn't see that. We didn't see this hidden inflation. And that, and, that, and that really resulted in lots of bad decisions because, you know, Thomas Sargent's a Nobel Prize winner, has done a lot of study about, about people being able to figure out and a lot of Fed policy's not working because we can project inflation. But we couldn't project inflation in this case. And it got, it got even worse because it was a wrong price signal to the Chinese, right? We, by holding prices up, we were telling the Chinese to produce like crazy, driving manufacturing jobs out of the U.S. But what we were doing was incenting consumption. Remember, housing is consumption. We were teaching people how to build houses, right, which is now a useless activity. Construction workers have competitive wages with manufacturing wages. We drove up manufacturing wages, drove the jobs to China. Now they know how to do it. We can't get the wages back, right? And, and that was going on a lot because of this hidden inflation. And of course, the fact that they used uh, rental uh, apartment rates instead of home prices in calculating CPI was a double, kind of a double, double, double anna. Another interesting phenomenon, I can't prove this, I wish I could, but, but I know it's true, even though I can't prove it. I am strongly convinced that private markets would have come up with a very different interest rate scenario than the Federal Reserve. And I base that on the fact that I was participant in the Financial Service Roundtable and its predecessors for, uh, from 1988 to 2008, for 20, 20, uh, 20 years. And during that process, I had lots of meetings with CEOs of large financial institutions. And I think of that group as a proxy, it's not perfect, but a proxy for the capital markets. And we would always talk about the Fed's interest rates. And I am convinced, based on those conversations, that each of us acting independently, not colliding with each other, deciding this, would have acted differently in the price. And remember, we set prices for lots of stuff, right? Service charges, et cetera, et cetera. We would have never driven interest rates down as low as, as, as Greenspan took them. We never would have raised them as fast because we wouldn't have been as down, and we never would have inverted the yield curve. Now, I don't mean the banker sitting in the back room having this conversation, no. I mean each of us independently profit maximizing our own businesses, thinking about our well-being and not a bit concerned with the common good, would have had a very different interest rate scenario that in hindsight would have eliminated a lot of the problems that we experienced in our economy. And I'm convinced that that is true, that is true. In fact, the whole idea of the, gov of the public good, which is, is an interesting thing I'll talk, talk on in just a second. Uh, final thought around the Federal Reserve monetary policy. I believe that what the Federal Reserve is doing today is very destructive. I think it's reducing economic productivity, not raising it. Uh, and I'll tell you why, and give you an example. I, last week I was in uh, New York talking to a number of private equity guys. And I was saying, well, you know, since the interest rates are so low, have you lowered your cost of capital? They said, heck no. 
We know the Fed's been printing money like crazy. We, don't, we know our interest rates are going up in the future. We don't know whether that means commodities are going first or our sales price are going first. We kept our rate of return levels exactly the same. So the lower interest rates are not incenting real investment. They might be incenting a little bit of consumption and housing, but they're not incenting productive investment. But there's a deeper issue, and I think this is a really important issue. The Federal Reserve says that they're holding interest rates below market rates. What that means is they are redistributing wealth from savers to borrowers. That is a very destructive, immoral decision, right? It's an immoral decision. I'll give you a concrete example. My mother, my mother's 86 years old. Uh, she and my dad, we were lower middle class people, worked daggum hard. My, they saved enough money for my mom to live on. She's been living on her interest income. Now she's having to spend her principal. She's really depressed about it. Now, economically, she shouldn't be because I'm going to take care of her, but she doesn't want me to take care of her, right? She's proud of what she did. And, she's really, and she will not live long enough, even if the Fed policies work when they aren't going to work, for it ever to be just for her for what the Fed's doing. The arbitrary redistribution of wealth from savers to borrowers, and particularly borrowers that committed lots of bad decisions, is unethical. It is an unethical decision. And that alone, by the way, would condemn the Fed from my personal perspective. All right, what should we do? I'm for privatizing the banking system. I like what... What George and Larry White said, I would get rid of the Fed. I disagree with what was said this morning. I don't think you should have the Fed in private uh, banks because I don't think you can compete. I, we were trying to compete against Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, and you can't do it. So I think you got to, uh, how you get there, I think it may take some years, but the goal is quick. We need a private banking system with the gold standard. I'm sure that's what the market would select. And the reason we need to get rid of the Fed are not the technical things and even the moral thing. But, but if, as long as the Fed exists, the temptation for Congress to borrow till we go broke is there. Believing that congressmen will discipline themselves if they can print money is, is incredibly naive. It's just incredibly naive. They will borrow us into some kind of economic chaos. That's just a fact. Also, here's an interesting thing. From 1870, 1913, we, we did not have a private banking system in the United States. And yet we had a very successful economy. We had some bad bumps, but most of the dips were deep. And, and, and so private banking systems actually have worked. But it's not even fair to compare now to, to the early 1870s. Think about in 1913, when the Fed was introduced, think about where technology was, where air travel was. I'm going to make this whole list. What has advanced the least in our economic system? The monetary policies. What markets are about are experiments. Now, some of the experiments don't work. But the existence of a government agency in any arena destroys the experimentation process and keeps people from learning. I would guarantee you a lot of stuff we're talking about philosophically, markets would have already solved a long time ago, and we would have a very advanced monetary system in the United States instead of struggling with the issues of what do we do about the Fed. We stop the learning process. Um, if you can't get rid of the Fed, I, I kind of agree with Milton Friedman. The second best solution would be to say, okay, you can grow the money spot 3%, that's it. I disagree with Milton Friedman because he had all these kind of exceptions. That's naive. The exceptions will become the rule. Grow it at 3%, that's it, if you're going to have to have a Fed. Um, I will offer one solution for the banking system if we can't get there, the, the nice move. I think we ought to raise capital limits in the banks materially and take away the risk from the, from the public. They ought to be the shareholders of the bank. But to do that, you've got to get rid of FDIC insurance. You've got to privatize insurance. You've got to say the, the Fed cannot. It's against the law of active treason. They can't save General Electric again. And you also got to eliminate 95% of the regulations. 
the banking industry cannot be competitive with its current regulatory board. I told you regulations are more expensive than taxes in our industry. What we've done, we've put in a new regulatory cost structure and asked banks to raise capital. We ended up with a non-viable financial industry. You got to get rid of regulations if you want banks to have more capital. You can't do two at the same, at the same time. One kind of set of closing thoughts, as interesting as all the economics are uh, in this situation, I believe the fundamental fight is over philosophy, it's over ideas. And I think the Fed reflects that in many ways. You know, how do we get in this mess in a philosophical sen uh, sense? I think it's a combination of altruism and pragmatism. Uh, everybody has a right to a house, provided by who? Everybody has a right to free medical care, provided by who? You know, my right to free medical care is my right to enslave a doctor to provide me with that medical care or enslave somebody else to pay that doctor. That is exactly the opposite of the American concept of rights. The American concept of rights, you have the right to what you produce, what you create. Well, not, not what somebody else produces, not what somebody else creates. Uh, in business, we combine altruism with pragmatism because you can't really be an altruist and be successful in business. And pragmatism, the rule is do what works. Unfortunately, a lot of things work in the short term that are very destructive in the long term. Negative amortization mortgages, pick a payment mortgages, subprime mortgages work for years and then they're a disaster. Think about the Fed. It is a classic altruistic organization trying to save indebted borrowers, financial institutions that are failing, and it's using pragmatic standards. Oh, say, oh, we're only doing this because this is an emergency. We won't ever do this again. Uh, classic pragmatism. The problem with being a pragmatist, you can't be rational. Because rationality demands a long-term perspective. You can't have integrity either, by the way, because integrity is acting consistent with principles. Combine altruism and pragmatism, you get something I call the free lunch mentality. Last uh, presidential election, neither candidate offered any serious solution for Social Security and Medicare, even though we have huge debts. And if they had, they would not have been elected, right? Uh, they would, what's the Fed trying to do? Drive rates down so borrowers can get out of trouble. Free lunch mentality. Unfortunately, the free lunch mentality leads to a lack of personal responsibility, which is ultimately the death of democracies. By the way, the central issue in our society today that underlies all of this, and it's, it's an issue that relates to sound money, do we really believe in personal responsibility or not? It is a fundamental issue. Founding fathers talked about the tyranny of the majority. They were talking about the abuse of individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, but they also realized when 51% of the people figured out they voted free lunch from 49%, pretty soon the party's over. Because 60% want a free lunch from 40%, then 70% want a free lunch from 30%, and the 30% quit. Interestingly enough, the solution is also philosophical. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each individual's moral right to their own life. Each individual's moral right to the pursuit of their happiness. Each individual's moral right to the product of their labor. If they produce a lot, they get a lot, including the right to give it away to whoever they want to on whatever terms they want to. Um, that moral prerogative, by the way, demands personal responsibility, right? Because there is no free lunch. There is no free lunch. Uh, most people, when they hear life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, think about liberty. Libertarians think about liberty. Liberty is very important because the human mind has to be free to produce. But more important, the world-changing idea was the pursuit of happiness. Before Jefferson, before the thinkers of the Enlightenment, everybody existed for somebody else's good. Good to the king, good to the state, good to the church. Nobody existed for their own good. What Jefferson said is each of us has a moral right to the pursuit of our personal happiness. We're not guaranteed success in that pursuit, but we have that right. That's changed the world. Created the most successful society and the most benevolent society. When people have the right to their own life, they're naturally nicer to other people. 
in communist and socialist societies, everybody ends up hating each other because they're all slaves to each other. Um, one of the issues that I talk about uh, when I talk to students about this financial crisis, we had economic problems, philosophical, we also had lots of failures of leadership. And, and it's interesting, if you think about what leadership is, is about in business, it's really about the pursuit of happiness. It's creating an environment where people can pursue their personal happiness. And what does that, does that require? It requires a sense of purpose. It requires an environment where people use their minds to be productive, to be creative where they think. And an interesting thing happens when they're clear about their purpose, they use the capacity to think, they get to do something very important, they raise their self-esteem. And raise the self-esteem as the foundation for happiness. And happiness is the end of the game. I don't mean having a good time on Friday night, but in the Aristotelian sense, hard-earned, hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, happiness. When you're 80 years old, you look back and say, yeah, it was hard work, but I'm glad I did it. That's the end of the game, right? Sometimes people in business get confused. They think money's the end of the game. Nothing wrong with money. Money's a good thing, but money's not an end. It could be a means to an end, but it's not an end. And if you're going to pursue your happiness, you have to earn self-esteem. Uh, and, and earning self-esteem requires that you live your life with integrity. But there's also another aspect of, of self-esteem that has social implications that I think are material. Uh, everybody in this room, and the vast majority of the people on this planet, most of your self-esteem comes from your work. Because you spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy at work. Something I say to all the employees of BB&T, it's real important to BB&T that you do your job well. It's far, far, far more important to you. Might fool me about how well you do your job, might fool your boss about how well you do your job, but you'll never fool you. If you don't do your work the best you can possibly do it, give me your level of skill, give me your level of knowledge, you will lower your self-esteem. I say that to students. The students, your, your college work, if you don't do your work the best you can do it, give me your level of skill and knowledge, you will lower your self-esteem even if you get a good grade. Now, the interesting thing, the flip's also true. Do your work the best you can do it. Give me your level of skill, give me your level of knowledge, and you will raise your self-esteem. And that's more important than when you get more money or for promotion or get a good grade, because it's about who you are. And there's actually a whopping social implication uh, to that. Take an entry-level construction worker, bricklayer. Has a tough, tough life. Reminds me of my granddad. Tough life. Uh, but somehow he, he gets through it. And he and his wife successfully raise their children. And maybe his granddaughter becomes CEO of a public company, maybe not. He has a tough, hard life, but he gets something very precious from his work. He gets self-esteem. He gets to be proud of himself. Take that same bricklayer and give him welfare. He's better off financially, but he loses his pride. He loses his self-esteem. You know, there's a lot of focus in our society on security. If you think about the Federal Reserve, what is it about? Why was it created? To be secure, right? <laughs> to keep us from making mistakes. And that focus on security. We care about security, but this is not the land of security, right? If you wanted to be secure, stay in Europe, right? The people didn't get on a boat and come to Jamestown to be secure. The United States is the land of opportunity. The opportunity to be great. The opportunity to fail and try again. But most importantly, the opportunity of that bricklayer to live life on his own terms, to pursue his personal happiness given his beliefs, given what's important to him. And that is the American sense of life, and that is what is so precious to protect. Thank you very much. <laughs>